If you please take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. And if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 916. If you've not been with us, let me just catch you up where we are. We're continuing our study through this book, this book of Acts, tracing the progress of Jesus' Jesus's kingdom through his messengers, the apostles, and through the early church. And we're opening now to the eighth chapters, starting in verse 4. And here we see the work of one of those messengers named Philip. And through Philip, in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see three things. Yes, I'm getting to my outline this quickly. Three things. And the first thing we'll see is that amazing things happen in God's kingdom. Amazing things happen in God's kingdom. You'll have to wait for two and three. Sorry. Amazing things happen in God's kingdom. I'm going to start reading Acts 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So as we've been seeing this kingdom expansion into new areas and new places... Always comes with great spiritual power. This is an intentional act on God's part to show in these places where the gospel is not yet. That God is doing something significant to pay attention to. His rule and reign is going forward and overcoming and overriding the forces of darkness. And evidence is abounding everywhere. Like Simon. He was, to this point in Samaria, the definition of spiritual power and greatness in Samaria. What people thought about him tells you about the entrenched spiritualism of the place. This place is trapped in dark magic and idolatry. And they were thinking they were worshiping God. Until Philip shows up, preaching a greater power and the true God. The one true God who had come to earth through his son Jesus Christ and whose rule extends far beyond anything Simon could claim. Next to God's power, Simon's magic apparently is quickly dismissed as parlor tricks. Instead of giving their praise to Simon, now people giving their praise 
in following Jesus Christ, showing their faith and allegiance to him, following him through being baptized. Now, at this point in the narrative, we're really familiar with people like those who made up the councils in chapter 2 and chapter 5. Those who lose their power because of the advancing kingdom of Jesus, responding by rising up and fighting to preserve their power. But that's not what Simon does. Simon knows power when he sees it and respects this new power. This power amazes him, the text tells us. And he believes it's connected to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So he does what everyone else is doing. He follows in baptism. Now before the Enlightenment, if you're familiar at all with history and how it's gone. Before the Enlightenment in the late 1600s, people in the Western world, or what was the Western world at the time, were actually accustomed to believing amazing things when they saw them. I know that seems odd now in our day of questioning everything and wondering if what we're seeing is actually the real thing and is everything kind of planned and prescribed. Well, there was a time when people believed amazing things when they saw them. Perhaps that went hand in hand with people being more aware of their mortality then than they are maybe now. I don't think you find that kind of fear or awareness of spiritual realities as much these days. Not commonly, at least. We are taught that reason is the supreme demonstration of human power. And faith is a crutch for the intellectually inferior. Medicine reduces our fear of sickness and for good reason. We've certainly benefited from those advances. But don't you find that people often have a rational explanation for any and all phenomena? It might be a science lab experiment or a psychological manual or a cause and effect law of order. Very little, if anything, is miraculous anymore. Even if you hear about spiritual things talked about in public discourse, it's usually connected to the power of you. The ability to better yourself, help yourself. Become your better self, your true self. And if by chance that happens to work in your life for any period of time, that just all makes sense because you set your mind to it and it was done. Even in our churches, our spiritual receptors can be numb sometimes to the divinely orchestrated things happening. I think the Reformation did a wonderful thing in that it challenged the baseless superstition of the Catholic system of the day and grounded people back in the clear revelation of God's holy word. This was a movement saturated in the conviction that there is spiritual power being exhibited through God's proclaimed word. There was a conscious awareness that such things as preaching and spirit power go hand in hand. But I wonder if now, if much of the legacy of the Reformation that remains is doctrine-heavy and invisible spiritual power light. Preaching is still a common activity in pulpits like this. 
But often there is little anticipation that through that preaching, miracles will happen. We are well acquainted with justification that the reformers helped us to resurrect. But are we not also at times ignorant of how the Spirit works? Even so, with all that said, though some of us, I think, would want to deny it, we are undeniably spiritual people. When tragedy strikes your life, your thoughts and my thoughts turn to God, turn to prayer, turn to need for help. When our fortunes turn swiftly, we briefly acknowledge at least some external force to be at work, be it luck or chance or karma or providence. I just want to highlight that the book of Acts is telling us that God does amazing things. And if you watch where he is working, you will witness it. Well, maybe you say to me, Philip, I've not seen anything remarkable happen. That's actually why I don't believe in God. If he would do something, then I would believe. Well, let me just gently question back. I wonder when and where have you been looking for him to work? And how do you expect him to be working? Acts 8 verse 7 shows God works among people who are desperate and needy and know they cannot help themselves. Maybe we don't see God working because we don't truly feel our need of him. Sure, we want him to fix something. We want him to give something. We want him to change something. But if he doesn't, I think we just kind of figure we'll find a way to figure it out ourselves. But if you, and if you have, you know what I'm talking about. If you get low to that place where no matter how hard you try, you can't walk out. You can't walk out of that addiction or that depression or sin's consequences or destructive choices or just weakness. You know, you know what it's like to cry out help knowing that is all your strength can offer. The rest, you know, must come entirely from outside. And that is the place where God's kingdom power operates. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not a power of his working everywhere else there is. He sustains everything by the word of his power. But I think in those places is where we see God's cooperative power, his restorative power. In other places, we see his power opposing and disciplining. Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to see God work in amazing ways? Start depending on him for everything and resting on your strength for nothing. Dependence is the evidence of a humble heart, a desperate heart. A humble and contrite heart is tuned to the same frequency as the work of God's Spirit. I'm not saying we manipulate God by our posturing, kind of fake him out by putting on the right face. No, I'm talking about watching God work and inviting his process to be applied into our lives. There is a reality operating around us, and if we are willing, it will be operating in us in which God does amazing things. And we see it happening in this church all the time. 
baptism testimonies of the spiritually dead resurrected. Reconciliation breaking up stony walls of unforgiveness. Personal stories of circumstances turned for our good and God's glory that only God could write. When we see God's power changing lives like what was happening in Acts, we then should ask the question, how can I be a part of that? What does it look like to respond to the power of the kingdom and receive what is being offered? What does it look like to be saved? And the rest of the book of Acts gives us two possible possibilities of how we answer that question. Through two examples. One example, Simon, who we've already been introduced to. And another man who we'll see from Ethiopia. Simon will give us something of a negative answer. He will teach us what will not save. And the Ethiopian will show us who will save. That will be where we go for the rest of the time. So point number two will be this. Signs cannot save. Signs cannot save. And then point three, only God saves. Only God saves. So point number two, signs cannot save. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Let me stop right there, realizing I have not planned this in the rest of my notes, but I think it's important. I do not think Acts here is teaching us a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think this is a significant time in church history. Where, this, where the work of the gospel is going out and God is attesting to that through the giving of the Holy Spirit accompanied with the move of the gospel. That once churches are set up and the gospel is planted, those things kind of go hand in hand. That when a person receives the Lord in faith, they receive the Holy Spirit in that time. They come to be indwelled. I think this is just a particular time and place where these things are being shown to us. All right, there we go. Now, number eight, verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Where Simon ends up here is not where he seems to have begun. In verse 13, Simon believes and is baptized. In verse 24, he's unable to repent. His story seems to be like the parable Jesus told of the sower who sowed the seed of the word. 
Some ground received it, plants sprouted up quickly, but then withered away. You can have a point in time that you remember where you prayed a prayer and got baptized. But if your life is not exhibiting the ongoing fruit of sensitivity to, confession of, and walking away from sin, you should not lean on a prayer or a time when you got wet in the church as proof of your salvation. When a person desires to join a church like ours, Jesus directs the church to evaluate that person's testimony on two things. Their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their desire to follow him as signified in in their baptism as a believer. That's just recognizing as Jesus knew about us, we cannot see a person's heart, their true spiritual state. And sometimes even our own hearts can be expertly disguised and hidden even from ourselves. So it is a reality in the church that some will come and some will even join and then prove in time to have been interested or newly interested in something other than following Jesus. That's what seems to happen with Simon. In Acts chapter 8, the powerful signs that were going on in that place were meant to bring attention to Jesus Christ. But Simon stopped short of that at the sign. Simon wasn't drawn to, the, to Jesus. He was drawn to the power. The power he saw should have led him like the other Samaritans to go one step further and rejoice that salvation had come through Jesus from God. But instead he stops at the power and falls to the trap of desiring to be like God and own the power for himself. There may be a Simon here this morning. Someone very interested in God, very interested in people who are connected to God. Maybe you come here and you're very happy to be here. And yet if you were asked, you wouldn't have a personal story to tell about Jesus changing you. You're more interested in seeing if God or people here might help you change the circumstances of your life. You're here to find a job. You're here to find a romantic relationship. You're here because you think there's some magic in religion that when you tap into it, it will make your life better. You might be like Simon, looking for signs from God and not seeing that whatever sign he gives you is meant to point you to your need of salvation in Jesus. Simon's inability to see past the sign to his need was a major obstacle for him. And the apostles tell him if he cannot get over this fixation, he will never be able to be right with God. He didn't need his own power. He needed Christ's righteousness for him to reconcile him to God. This is why trying to win someone to Christianity by focusing on something besides Jesus and his death and resurrection for sinners, is dangerous to the person you're trying to win. If we are an attractional church in any sense of the word, despite our stained carpet and peeling paint, 
If we are an attractional church in any sense of the word, we want our attraction to be through the power of the gospel clearly preached and the evident work of the spirit through that gospel among us. Simon offers to buy the Holy Spirit, which shows us how highly he thinks of the power of his money and how low he thinks about the power of God. As the apostles will clarify, God does not share that view. No one gets what God gives except as a gift of undeserved grace. And no one who thinks highly of themselves wants to receive a gift that they're told they don't deserve. Self-reliance and self-dependency often prohibit our ability to experience grace. We start to think God depends on us to work through what we already have. Simon thought his primary need was just getting more powerful than he already was. There's a greater need we have than getting more than what we already have. We need something we don't have. We need a new heart. And Simon, though he had power and money, he still couldn't see what he needed most. Salvation from his sins. Oh, you just, you just... It's just so sad to hear Simon's request, his, his ask in verse 24, when, when told to, to turn to Jesus and turn from his sin and repent and ask Jesus to do what only he could do and give him a new heart is so sad. To hear Simon in verse 24 pathetically appeal for someone else to somehow vicariously appeal for him, not himself knowing how to do what the apostles told him he must do himself. Repent and have his heart forgiven. God doesn't want to improve you. He wants to completely remake you. Do you have a desire for God to reform you? Or remake you? That will affect what you look to him for. Simon saw in the sign a promise of amendment to keep what he had and gain some more. But salvation is a message of bring nothing, leave everything and get everything which only Jesus can provide. That's why when we gather as a church. And your leaders plan and prioritize what we do, we collectively aim to make it clear that we are trusting in Christ and him alone. This is why we confess our sins. This is why we lead long, read long passages of scripture like Jessica did that lead us to confess our sins. That's why we linger at length to think even after someone has helpfully led us in confessing our sins, we silently think of more sins to confess. And once we have done that, we turn in faith and trust to the pardon that comes through Jesus Christ. And we sing praise and adoration for Christ's atoning work. And this is why we counsel each other with gospel truth of supernatural help through the spirit instead of therapeutic help through the self. Signs cannot save us. Which leads us to our third point. Only God saves. Only God saves. Simon will... Sadly, shows the negative example of what it looks like to refuse the kingdom. 
But the man we're introduced to in verse 26 through 40 shows us positively a person who receives the kingdom. And shows us the truth that only God saves. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the first of three conversion stories that are lined up in the narrative of Acts. Next will be Saul and then Cornelius. Most of the details of this salvation story emphasize how unlikely this was to happen. So the eunuch was from a different country. He seemed to have a fear of God because he came to Jerusalem to worship Israel's God. But as a eunuch, he wasn't allowed close to the temple. He wasn't allowed in the assembly at the temple per the rules and laws in Deuteronomy 23. When Philip meets him, he's on his way back home and he's in a remote place. And Philip has no reason to be there. And even if he had been there, no reason to talk to this man. The unlikeliness of the whole scene highlights that it is the Spirit's work that's happening when it happens. God sees the man and directs his messenger Philip to the man. God doesn't disregard the man, even though he wasn't allowed at the temple. God has providentially been working on the eunuch's heart, even giving him the means to own a copy of the word of Isaiah. God delivers the man an answer to the questions he has about Jesus through a divinely appointed agent. The eunuch needed so many things for his salvation, and God supplied every one. He needed insight into what the word meant. He needed someone to come and tell him the good news of Jesus. He needed understanding in his mind and heart to believe and desire to follow. And God gave every part. This story is like Jesus' parable of the lost sheep in Matthew 18, isn't it? 
Jesus like a shepherd who goes in search of the one person who's lost and needs to be found and brought back to him. And here in Acts 8, the spirit is the one searching and drawing sent by Jesus, the shepherd. There is no distance. The spirit will not travel to find a person that God loves. No previous sin you've done prevents him from seeing you and coming for you. No barrier of ignorance or isolation from him due to your upbringing or your own choices. There's a kind of subtle miraculousness to the Spirit's work with the Ethiopian. It's the same Spirit who was working very obviously, very publicly among the people of Samaria just a few verses ago, but instead of Big strokes of physical healing of bodies or even bold, evident demonstrations of overpowering dark demons. Here, the Spirit is working powerfully to quietly draw one person to himself. And there's a contrast here between Simon's inability to repent and the eunuch's earnest desire to follow Jesus. Simon had access to great shows of power, but that didn't change his heart. The eunuch had the spirit of God drawing him to his word to see Jesus. And therefore, the man demonstrates a changed heart. There's an important distinction there between attraction and salvation. Simon was drawn to the effects of the spirit. But the Ethiopian was drawn by the Spirit. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what kind of power have you been thinking you need God to bring to your life? Is it a power of circumstantial change? Is it a power to accomplish A power of victory or success. If you're not a Christian, have you been waiting on him to do something obvious and public before committing your life to him? Or if you are a Christian, have you been unwillingly, unwilling to obey him until he does something powerful for you? Notice that the eunuch didn't see any of the powerful signs But he's the one who gets saved. Signs don't save. Only Jesus can save. The power to make our hearts new is the power of Jesus' blood shed on the cross. To purchase sinners from our deserved sentence and make us clean and new in God's sight. We get the gift of God only as that, a gift of his grace. As given to us though we don't deserve it. Without any money. Without any contribution. Without any work on our part. So when it comes to God. It is very good to see and rejoice in the power we see working outside us. But it is best. To have that power applied inside us. To save us. And give us new hearts that want to repent and believe. If you want his power to help you, he will begin to help you by asking to have your heart and your life.
seeing Simon's inability to repent. And then the eunuch's glad initiative that he himself takes to follow Jesus in baptism. We might ask, is there anything that I can or must do in this process? Is it all just the spirit drawing or am I to do something too? Well, yes, we must respond. But it must be like a humble beggar responds to the offer of bread. You know, there are proud beggars too. Those who, though obviously in need of a meal, can't bear to admit that they're the needy ones. So they scoff at the charity provided them and choose to starve and suffer a blow to their ego. But the humble beggar readily admits their desperate plight. And willingly receives grace when it's extended. I think we know we're humble beggars by what attracts us to Jesus. What we feel we need from him. If we're like Simon. And we just want Jesus to give us a power booster to enhance our life. We're proud beggars. Simon showed that he thought he knew best what he needed from God. And when the apostles offered him the actual way to God. He made it clear that he didn't want that. But the Ethiopian, he shows humility. He was a rich and powerful man, but he knows his money and his status mean nothing to God. He has an education, but he knows that won't help him understand God. He has a copy of God's word. And even if he can read the words, he recognizes he can't grasp their significance for him by himself. So I return to my question. What part... In God's saving and sanctifying process do we have? Receptive humility. Receptive humility. A willingness to adopt a posture that says, I'm a beggar. And God in his grace feeds me. I have come to him and I will come to him every day. And I will make the same ask for him To be my all, my rock, my guide, my water, my bread. And every day, he will lovingly give all that I need from himself. What is the difference between that posture and how we're living day by day right now? I think we often want our life with God to be the way of power like Simon. I know that's true about myself. (laughs) How easily I revert back daily to resting in my own strength. That God would just give us the tools. We'll take it from there. Give us the money. We'll promise to do good things with it. Give us the job. Then we'll figure out how to honor God with it. Give us the relationship. Give us the spouse. Give us the family. Then we'll joyfully live with God in it. God, give what we want. Then we will give you what you ask. But if God knows, if God does that, he knows this about us. If God knows, if he allows that, we will never receive the gift of his son. If God had us get accustomed to him fulfilling our human desires, we would never, ever want Jesus. Because Jesus didn't appear on this earth as a man of wealth or power or even beauty. If you want to read the rest of Isaiah 52 and 53... You see what kind of man Jesus was. And he was not that.
Jesus' way was not the path of prosperity and success. His way led him to suffer and be humiliated in order to bear our sins on himself so that we might be counted righteous. If we think what we need most is to have our physical needs met like Simon, we will not see our need for a humble and humiliated Jesus who went through that for our sake. Simon was drawn to power for himself and he missed the kingdom. But the Ethiopian was drawn to a humble savior. And in following that savior, the Ethiopian entered God's kingdom. I think it was Christ's humility that piqued the Ethiopian's interest as he read the Isaiah scroll in his chariot. He came upon that passage in verse 32 and 33. Like a sheep, speaking of Jesus, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. You can understand how a man who has everything this world has to offer would be curious reading about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah who has everything taken away. I wonder, are we willing to peer into that more? Are we willing to stop there and and ask, tell me more about this person? Are we willing to witness Christ's humiliation and ask, please guide me to know more about this one who did this? Or are we more inclined to see suffering and humiliation as those things we won't accept as a path for us? And miss Jesus because we only want the way of power. The eunuch is willing to humble himself. He shows such humility in this passage. He confesses to Philip he doesn't understand, but he wants to. In humility, when he reads God's word, he says, I don't understand this, but please explain it to me. When he hears Philip tell him about Jesus, who was who, was who Isaiah was talking about, the eunuch listens. He hears that Jesus suffered and died for him, and he believes. And he readily obeys when he hears Christ's command from Philip to be baptized as a way to signify that he believes in Jesus and wants to follow him. The eunuch going down to the water for baptism was going where the Spirit drew him, which was also where he gladly wanted to go. If you haven't taken that same humble path all the way into the water of baptism, I invite you to. I'd be happy to talk with you. And we as a church would be delighted to walk with you as you follow Jesus in faith and baptism and life with God and his people. Church, let's learn from this contrast between Simon and the Ethiopian. There is an irony in store for the church that aims to be a place of power. A church that tries to appear to be big or great in the world's eyes... Or the place where every Christian person needs to be if they want to be a part of what God is doing. That church is probably going to miss out on God pursuing his kingdom's purposes among them in some way. But the church that welcomes our own neediness, our ignorance, our dependency. We will see the spirit come in power. We will see the kingdom advance. Because that's where God works. Jesus says, doesn't he? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've been praying for this. We have been praying that the Lord and his spirit would lead and guide us. Keep praying for that. 
God is hearing those prayers. He is answering them. And we know now through this passage, if we didn't before, that the path he intends to lead us in and take us down is the same one Jesus took, the humble path. Even for the most educated among us, we still have much to learn from Jesus. Even for the wealthiest, we still depend on God to supply what we truly need. Even for the wisest, the word of God will make us wiser still. Even for those who lead, we need the spirit to guide us too. Humility in a church is evidence that the spirit is quietly but powerfully working to draw people to Jesus. Church, I want to encourage you. That is happening here. Jesus is giving his spirit to establish his kingdom here. How do I know? Because people are turning from sin and repentance. New hearts are coming alive in Christ. Others who have followed Jesus for years are following him still. And as they follow, they're seeking more of him for themselves. Brothers and sisters are confessing their need for forgiveness and grace, their need of each other's help, their need of time together in God's word and prayer. May the Holy Spirit cause us to keep abounding in humility so that his power here to save might be clearly seen. Well, as we've seen, we don't need signs to save. We need God to save. And we've also seen here that God chooses to save when his gospel is explained to people who don't know it. Did you notice that through this passage? That it is when the good news is preached. That's what God uses most clearly to save people. So the people in Samaria, verse 12, the eunuch with Philip in verse 35, as the eunuch takes him from the Old Testament to explain it's all fulfilled in Jesus and what he did. And all the other people who come to know the Lord through Philip in all those towns in verse 40. So if you've been listening to this message and like me, you want so much to be part of God's kingdom work to draw people to salvation. You and I are being called to be a part of that by explaining Jesus to people. When the spirit works among his people, the evidence is not only in people being drawn, but in people going to the people that the spirit is drawing. Going out with the gospel to the people God has marked to save. The power of God is not magic like Simon was seeking. It is a gospel message that saves. If God chose to send Philip to a random stranger, might he not send us to our neighbors that we already know? If God orchestrated unlikely events to arrange a meeting between Philip and the eunuch to talk about Jesus, might he not have the same intention for us to get into those kinds of conversations with somebody at the grocery store or at the coffee shop or at your workplace or in your classrooms? We don't need to be afraid. We just need to be willing to be used. The Spirit will give us words. He will draw the people. He will give you and me the privilege of telling others the good news about Jesus. We may even, like I assume he did with the Ethiopian, get to send or go to peoples and countries who haven't yet heard. So let me conclude. Simon wanted signs. The Ethiopian wanted to be saved. 
What do you want? Simon, unwilling to repent, failed to enter God's kingdom. The Ethiopian, willing to follow, came into the kingdom. Are we willing for the Spirit to take us on the humble path that leads to salvation and life in the kingdom? Let's pray. Father, having seen Christ, we pray you would apply what we've seen of him to our hearts and lives. Especially, Lord, that we would seek nothing else but him. We respond to his grace to us and humbly receive all that you give. Help us as your people here to go out ready to speak. Ready to engage in the work you have for us. Ready to be watching and and waiting for you to work in the areas where you work. Ready to be placed in the places where you work. And Lord, through sending us, we pray, Spirit, you would draw others. Draw even those who are here today that don't know you. Lord, help our faith to remain solely and only on Jesus Christ. Knowing that all our worth is in him. And if we are found in him, we have all we need. In Jesus' name, amen.